Well, as I shared in my sneak peek video earlier this week, I have, have always been convinced, in fact, I've always been taught that, that Christmas music, decorations, and lights all need to wait until after... That's exactly right. Now, I don't know what it is about this year, but for some reason I found myself fighting the urge to get those lights up a couple of weeks ago. In fact, if, if it had not been for a couple of unexpected things of this last week, I'm convinced I'd already had lights up by Thursday. And I know that I am not the only one. I've got some neighbors that had lights up more than a week ago. I've got a few family members who had already taken the plunge. And so maybe you've noticed the same thing. And I, I'm not talking about decorations in the stores. We, we all know those come out after about Labor Day. I, I, I'm talking about your own personal decorations. Maybe you found yourself ready to get into the Christmas spirit. But as Reed mentioned at the outset of worship here in the church, we approach this season with a bit more restraint, with a sense of intentionality. Today we begin the liturgical season of Advent. And so we don't open up worship saying Merry Christmas or singing joy to the world. We begin by lighting one candle. And you'll notice that our scripture reading for this morning doesn't feel particularly like Christmas. And I want to invite you to open there now in your pew Bibles, the Bibles you've brought from home or on the church app, to Jeremiah chapter 33. We'll be reading verses 14, 15, and 16. Hear the words of the prophet. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. We have a short text this morning, and so I'd like to read those words for you one more time. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, when reading any of the prophetic literature, it is, it is important to keep in mind that, that the prophets were, were speaking to or writing to a specific people in a very specific place at a very specific time. They're not writing to us. And, and so before we can begin to uncover what meaning it may hold for us, we need to first understand what it might have been saying to the people and places where we find these prophets. Jeremiah lived in what was a terrible time in the history of the people of Israel in fact, there really isn't enough time this morning to enumerate 
all of the awful things to occur, but I will give you a few of the highlights or, or lowlights, as it were. The kingdom that David had ruled over had already been split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And, and, and by the time that Jeremiah was alive, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Israel had already been invaded and conquered by the Assyrian Empire. The leaders and its ruling citizens had been carried off, never to be heard from again in history. This represented the disappearance of ten of the twelve original tribes of Israel. But it was also a time in which two of the Jewish people's most important institutions come to an end in spectacular fashion. The first was a political institution. It was the ending of the rule of the Davidic line of kings. God had promised the people of Israel that the line of kings extending from David would never be broken. Jeremiah witnesses first the capture of King Jehoiakim by the Babylonians, and after his capture, Jehoiakim's uncle, Zedekiah, is made king. Now it's worth noting that that Through all of these kingships, Jeremiah has been pleading with them not to fight the Babylonians, not to rebel, that their problems weren't with the Babylonians, but as astute political leaders do, these kings pointed to the Babylonians as the source of their problems. When Jeremiah kept reminding them, Your problems are rooted in your failure to live as God has designed you to live. And so nine years after Zedekiah is made king, he rebels against the Babylonians and trying to escape from Jerusalem, he is captured. His sons are murdered before him. And that's the last thing he sees as the Babylonian captors put his eyes out and then take him off to Babylon. They take him and they take all but only the poorest of those in Judah. All of them off to captivity. The second institution was was the spiritual institution of the temple. The earthly dwelling place of God. The tangible reminder that God was present among the people of Israel after carrying away Zedekiah as punishment for the rebellion the Babylonians destroy the temple. These two events occur within Jeremiah's lifetime. And so this is the context in which we find this prophecy. This is the darkness that surrounds Jeremiah as he writes, the days are surely coming when the Lord will fulfill the promise that he's made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah The line of David has been severed. The temple has been destroyed. And into the darkness, Jeremiah speaks, surely the days are coming. And if you were listening, Jeremiah speaks to both kingdoms. He speaks to all 12 tribes, to Judah and to Israel, promises that Jerusalem, the seat of the temple, will one day again be a seat of safety, security, righteousness, and peace. He speaks the promise that the Davidic line will be restored. Jeremiah speaks of a good that is beyond the reach of the evil that surrounds them all. 
And so I ask you this morning, what is the surrounding darkness of our age? What are those institutions that we hold dear that are under siege, political and spiritual? I read in the Wall Street Journal this last week that only, only 58% of Americans believe that the next election will be secure. It's hard to wrap my mind around that figure. That means if you look to your left and you look to your right, there is one of you who doesn't believe the next election will be secure. It means that that we are losing faith in our nation's ability to be a democracy. Friends, the institution of democracy is under tremendous strain. And this is not a Republican problem. This is not a Democrat problem. But our astute political leaders, social media, a variety of news outlets would have us believe that it's a them problem. Just as the kings wanted the people to believe it was a Babylonian problem, it was a them problem. What Jeremiah reminds us is that it's simply an us problem. Because we are not living or relating to one another the way that God has designed us to live. And that is disheartening. And Patrick shared some months ago that, that House of Worship membership has fallen below 50% for the first time since that statistic was measured. This, the spiritual institution of the church is under strain. What does it look like, friends, for us to be the church in a context where fewer and fewer people have confidence in the church? What is our response as people, as God's people? Princeton Seminary President Craig Barnes writes about the churches, how churches tend to respond in very anxious ways to this reality in, in a 2016 Christian Century article. And he says this, he says, The church has never looked less attractive than when it dresses in its own anxiety. Historically, that's when we've made our worst mistakes. Fear it makes us desperate. We throw the little money and energy that remains into trendy programs that make no substantive change. Or worse, we become fixated on finding someone to blame for our demise. These are expressions of despair, which is where anxiety lands after it slides to the bottom we become fixated on finding someone to blame for our demise. Again, we make it a them problem when it's an us problem. Because at the very root of this fear, of, of this anxiety, is ego. It, it's this notion that, that somehow God will fail without the institution of the church. Friends, here this morning... That the good news is that God's victory is not predicated on the survival of the church as we know it. God's victory was the emphatic 
response of Jesus Christ's entry into the world. The church has never looked less attractive than when it dresses in anxiety. I would say we could take that a step further and simply say Christians are never less attractive when, than when they dress in anxiety, or perhaps even people are never less attractive than when they dress in their own anxiety. And so we must remember, we are not tasked with saving the church, but rather simply given an opportunity to be a part of the church. So how do these factors, how do these institutional doubts shape your understanding of the world around you? How do they shape your behaviors? How do they inform your world view? Or perhaps for you, for you it's, it's an issue entirely different than the ones that I've mentioned this morning. What are those issues for you, those those factors that constitute the fabric of the ever-creeping shadow of doubt, fear, and anxiety. J.R. Tolkien's epic trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, is, is one of the great adventure stories of the last century. More than 150 million copies sold worldwide, more than 50 million since the year 2000. It's been made into a series of movies, and there's even an upcoming Amazon TV series based in Middle-earth, the world that Tolkien creates as the setting for his story. And I think one factor contributing to, to its lasting appeal over the course of 70 years is, is the nature of the struggle of the characters. They transcend culture and generation and setting. It's the struggle between good and evil, the love between friends, and the desire to be part of something bigger than one's self. Now, in the case that you are not familiar with Tolkien's story, it, it is centered around the journey of these two friends, of Frodo and Sam, as they attempt to cross Middle-earth and venture into the land of Mordor, where the great enemy of all life in Middle-earth resides, in order to destroy a ring and so there is this scene that I want to share with you this morning that I was reminded of as I worked on this week's text from Jeremiah. After months of travel, Frodo and Sam have, have made it into the land of shadow, the word Tolkien uses to refer to the, the evil of Middle-earth. They've made it into Mordor, and they are exhausted. They are hungry, and they are surrounded on all sides by great evil, and danger. And here, Tolkien writes, Frodo and Sam sat and made such a meal as they could, keeping back the, the precious food for the evil days ahead. They ate the half of what remained in Sam's bag of provision, some dried fruit and a small slip of cured meat, and they sipped some water. There was a bitter tang in the air of Mordor that dried the mouth. And when Sam thought of water, even his hopeful spirit quailed. 
Now you go to sleep first, Mr. Frodo, Sam said. It's getting dark again. Frodo was asleep almost before the words were spoken. Sam struggled with his own weariness, and he took Frodo's hand. And there he sat, silent, till deep night fell. And then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place. The land seemed full of noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far above the mountains in the west, the night sky was still dim. And there, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark peak high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And now for a moment, his own fate and even his masters ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep and untroubled sleep. Sam sees this star in the darkness and thinks, there is light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of this great evil. Forever beyond the reach. And I wonder if Tolkien didn't in some way have the beleaguered prophet Jeremiah in his mind as he penned this scene. There is light forever beyond the reach of this great evil. Surely, the days are coming, says the Lord. Friends, in the encroaching darkness, as we cry out, come, O Savior of the world, come and save us all. As we cry, God, are you there? God answers with the emphatic yes of Jesus Christ. And so we can know that God's promises are sure, that God's promises are dependable. And so friends, this Advent season, may this candle be a reminder to you that there is a light forever beyond the reach of our surrounding darkness. That there is a light shining in the darkness, that God's promises are sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.